Welcome to the Boomer Bar, the podcast where we talk about boomer stories from the San Mateo County Bar Association. I'm your host, Deborah Kemper, and today's episode is going to be a little different. This is the recording of a conversation between Justice Kelly Evans and Judge Shanahi Cadet at our 15th Annual Diversity Speaker Series through the San Mateo County Bar Association's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. This was a powerful conversation. We learn about Justice Evans' career in public service, and she highlighted a few points, such as how representation matters in all professions, the importance of education and public service, closing the justice gap, and so much more. So let's listen in on the conversation. All right. Well, um, Justice Evans, in researching your background, I see that you've talked about being raised by your grandmother in humble circumstances. So I was wondering if you could tell us about your formative years and how they impacted you and how your grandmother impacted you. Sure. Uh, my, uh, my grandmother, I love to say her name because her name sounds like music. Her name was Alfreda Onita Cooper. And my daughter, uh, has the same middle name. My daughter's middle name is Onita, so she shares uh, my grandmother's middle name. M- my grandmother was the oldest of 11 children, and she grew up in rural Ford, Florida during the Jim Crow period. Uh, she experienced brutal racism and had to drop out of school in eighth grade to help care for her younger siblings. Uh, I ended up living with her because her daughter, her oldest daughter, my mother, suffered from addiction, very serious addiction and serious mental health issues for most of her life. And when I was about five and a half years old, she realized she could no longer care for me or my little sister, and so asked her mother to take care of us. And so I grew up with with my grandmother in Colorado in public housing. Um, Because my grandmother only had an eighth grade education, she was largely relegated to lower wage um, minimum, if that wage work, that was you know, very, very hard. And so one of the things she did is she stressed to her daughters and to her grandchildren the importance of education. She knew that education could open doors. And so she always told us, go to school, get your education so you don't have to kill yourselves like I do. Um, and so she made sure that even though we didn't have any money, she scrimped and saved to make sure that we had a house filled with books. She, she bought an encyclopedia set on what was probably a usurious installment contract. I'm sure she paid, I don't know if any of you had parents that, I see some nods that, you know, you have those uh, kind of scammy sales people that would come into poor neighborhoods and sell things to poor people. But I treasured those encyclopedia. I read them A to Z and Z to A and back and forth. And she would also uh, go to Woolworth She worked in the Woolworth cafeteria for a period, but she'd go to Woolworth and occasionally they'd have books for sale in the bargain bin for for a dollar. And so she wanted to get the best value for her money, so she'd look for the thickest books. And so she'd come home with these, the thickest books she could find, meaning that as a young girl, I read some wildly inappropriate titles. (laughs) But look where I am now. You know, she was an amazing, amazing role model, and I'm where I am now because of her. When she died, I put my law degree in her casket because it certainly um, belonged to her. 
Oh, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. And when you graduated high school, you then attended Stanford University. Ooh, Stanford. <laughs> Stanford, Stanford rocks, you know, fear the tree. So, um, <laughs> so how was it transitioning from very humble beginnings to being in one of the most prestigious universities um, in the world? How, how was that transition for you? Well, I had, um, I had some practice because, as I mentioned, uh, we lived in the projects in public housing, but we had been on a list HUD, the, Depart the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development had a program at the time where they realized that having residential concentrated areas of poverty maybe wasn't the, the best idea. So they had a program uh, that families could sign up for to move into market rate housing that the federal government would subsidize. So we were on the list for that program for a long time. And about two weeks into high school, our ticket was drawn. We got notice that our number was drawn and we were able to move from the public housing project to a market rate apartment complex. And in retrospect, it was an extraordinarily modest, teeny tiny, two bedroom, one bath apartment complex, but we thought we were the Jeffersons. I mean, we were moving on up. Uh, so we moved there and this apartment complex happened to be in the catchment area of what was at the time one of the very best school districts in Colorado. So I moved from a predominantly Latino neighborhood, mostly Latinos, uh, sprinkling of African Americans and Asian Americans and a handful of poor white families, public housing to a, a predominantly white middle, upper middle class neighborhood for high school. So the real culture shock for me came with that transition, but it was great preparation for Stanford. <laughs> I can relate to that a little bit. Um, I was first generation college and uh -huh. went to Stanford. The culture shock was at Stanford, so <laughs> it's a good thing. Um, so after law school, you worked for the Sacramento County Public Defender's Office, representing indigent defendants. Um, you are the only person currently on the California Supreme Court to have represented indigent defendants. Um, so how was your experience as an assistant uh, public defender, if you could describe your experience and does it impact your decision-making as a California Supreme Court Justice? Sure. You know, I was interested in indigent defense. Uh, I became interested in law school when I had the opportunity to do a couple of internships at the Public Defender's Office working in the Major Crimes Unit, and that was the part of the Public Defender's Office that was defending uh, death penalty cases. So that um, it was when I first became interested. But Really, my interest stemmed from the fact that I believed then, as I do now, that poor people are entitled to the vindication of their rights in the same way, at the same level, as wealthier people. And that's really what the public defender system is about. Um, it's also about guarding against government overreach or undue influence. Um, and those are values that I had then and that I have now. Um, and then certainly inform my work on the court when I review matters. Um, it's very important to me that everyone's constitutional rights are respected. And I, you know, I think it's important to the other members of the court as well. Um, I happen to have the direct experience uh, representing people accused of crimes. 
Wonderful, wonderful. And then in your background, you did not just advocate on one side of the courtroom. After uh, working at the Sacramento County Public Defender's Office, you then switched teams. You worked for the U.S. Department of Justice on the prosecution side as a senior trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division. Um, so if you could describe why you became a prosecutor and what that experience was like for you. Well, let me, um, before I went to the, the Department of Justice, to the Civil Rights Division, I actually was a trial attorney at the ACLU. And as an ACLU attorney, you spend a lot of your time suing the government. And so when I went to the Civil Rights Division, the first time I stood up in court and said, Kelly Evans for the United States, it was, sounded so strange because I was used to being on the other side of the, of the V. Uh, but uh, e even though I worked for the Attorney General's office, the, I worked for the Civil Rights Division, and I worked for the part of the Civil Rights Division that was, it's called the Special Litigation Section. And it's the part of the division that was responsible for enforcing, um, at that time, a, federal, a fairly new federal statute that gave the U.S. Attorney General the statutory authority to investigate and sue states and local, lo, local agencies when they were engaged in a pattern or practice of civil rights violations. So that was my job. I had the, the privilege of working for DOJ and bringing some of the very first lawsuits under that new statute, then new statutory authority. So I was able to work on a lot of police accountability cases. Uh, you mentioned the Washington DC Police Department giving me a medal of honor. That was because they uh, had, they, there was a, a pattern of excessive use of force by police officers in the Washington Metropolitan Police Department. And it, it lots and lots of shootings and lots and lots of shootings of unarmed African-American men. A new police chief came in and he actually had the wisdom of coming to the Department of Justice and asking us to come in and evaluate his agency and tell him what was wrong. And so I was part of a team that did that and we recommended a host of reforms. Um, and when they implemented those reforms, the number of inappropriate shootings declined pretty significantly. Um, and so they gave that award, which was, which was wonderful. Um, so even though it was the Attorney General's office, it was using the power of the federal government on behalf of some of the most vulnerable people in our country, people who are experiencing abuses from law enforcement agencies. We also uh, did litigation involving prison and jail conditions cases as well. So again, when there was a pattern or practice of violations of people's rights who were incarcerated. So I did those cases all over the country from small jails in rural Appalachia to large uh, prison systems. Wow. And um, you, your career has been committed to public service, and I'm wondering what drew you to public service and, and, and kept you there? I, I probably, I'm speaking to the choir. Public service at heart is about you know, working in for the public good, but I, for me, I think people who work in public service are also optimists. <laughs> right, because if you work in public service, if you dedicate your life to working in the public, public interest, you believe that things can be better. You believe that our institutions, our systems, our structures should work and should work well for people, for all people. You believe that everyone should have a basic level of support, that everyone should have a fair shot 
Uh, so I think it's really that, that optimism. I'm an optimist by nature. Um, I, I think that things can always improve and I think everyone should benefit from those improvements. And I also think that there's nothing that people of goodwill and good faith when they come together can't accomplish. So I, that's probably why I've uh, focused on public service for my career. Beautiful. Um, now we ask our uh, Nancy Dayita scholarship uh, recipients to write their essays on why diversity is an, is an important thing in the legal profession. And so I was just wondering if you um, had thoughts about diversity in the legal profession and its importance. Sure, I, I think it's important in every profession, uh, our profession, the legal profession, but whether in a corporate boardroom, in a newsroom, in a classroom, it absolutely matters who's in the room and who's at the table. It helps inform the discussion, what questions are raised, whose experiences and viewpoints are given credibility, the solutions that are, are raised um, to problems. And if you don't have certain people at the table or in the room, those perspectives are never aired. And you know, sometimes you can see this, you may be sitting at home and you see a commercial and you think, what on earth? How did that ever, ever get through? It's because the, the right people weren't in the room. You know, they didn't didn't uh, participate in that discussions. For the for the for courts, it's particularly important. I think that we have people that are reflective of our communities. One of the things, you know, I'll tell you my I, I sort of approach everything from a little bit of an insider outsider perspective. I know what it's like to grow up with very few resources. I also know what it's like to be in the room at the table where the decisions are made, to be the decision maker. I know what it's like to be a black woman, to be a working mom, to be a lesbian, to be someone who has experienced racial profiling, someone who's worked hand in glove with law enforcement on a range of accountability issues. Um, so all of those experiences are diverse and they give me a unique perspective that I can bring to the mix when evaluating a legal problem. All right, and you currently serve on the California Commission on Access to Justice. I understand that that's something you did even before you were um, a Supreme Court Justice. So during your tenure heading the staff of the Access Commission, you were instrumental in planning and implementing the Incubator Project. Um, if you could please um, describe what that project is and how it increases access to justice for people here in California. Sure, well the, the Access to Justice Commission works on trying to close the justice gap. Are folks familiar with what the justice gap is? It's basically the difference between the number of people who have legal problems and can get the help they need and all the people who can't. Lots of low-income people and lots of moderate-income people simply can't afford legal help when they need it. Not in the languages that they need it, not at the time that they need it. And so the Access Commission tries to work on that issue and has tried to come up with some innovative models for doing so. And one of those models was to encourage young attorneys, newer attorneys, to um, set up projects that would help serve people that were in need of legal assistance. And by connecting them with experienced practitioners, giving them the mentorship and the resources they would need to be able to set up practices to uh, close some of the gaps. So that was the, the, the nature of the incubator project. We would incubate new uh, models for increasing access to justice. 
Wonderful. And then also on the California Commission on Access to Justice, um, you worked on the minimum access standards for administrative agencies. That's a mouthful. If you could please describe for, for everybody um, the importance of the access um, within the context of administrative agencies. Do we have any folks here who practice administrative law? Uh, I <laughs> Well, I mean, I think a lot of attorneys think that, but you know what, for poor people, administrative agencies, and not just poor people, but for poor people, administrative agencies make a lot of extraordinarily important decisions. You know, the Social Security Administration, the Veterans Administration, all of these um, agencies that determine, for example, whether or not someone qualifies for benefits. There, is a lot of really in, there are a lot of really important decisions that happen at the administrative agency level. And so one of the things the Access Commission tried to do um, is to set forth minimum standards for ensuring that people, everyday people, who interact with these agencies are treated fairly and given a fair shot. So that's what these standards were about. The administrative agencies, a lot of people don't know a lot about them, but they do so many things that are fundamentally important to all of our lives, and particularly for lower income folks. All right, and your uh, appointment to the Supreme Court was historic for many wonderful reasons. Um, you're the first openly um, lesbian person on the California Supreme Court, um, the second openly um, LGBTQ plus person uh, on the Supreme Court, and you're the sixth ever African-American on the history of the California Supreme Court. So if you could just describe to us what those milestones mean to you and why diversity is so important on the bench. Well, I, I stand on the shoulders of a lot of incredible people. I mentioned my grandmother, but there are any number of attorneys of color, you know, women of color, progressive attorneys, who forged paths. I wouldn't be here if it were not for them. I, I stand on their shoulders. I'll tell you a little, a little story. When I was at the governor's office, so while I was still an attorney before I got appointed to the bench, I was leaving the governor's office one day, and oftentimes tourists and school field trips would congregate outside the governor's office, hoping to catch a glimpse of him as he stepped out. So I stepped out to grab lunch, and there was a very diverse group of school kids, they were maybe third or fourth grade, but extraordinarily racially diverse. And one of the kids, I think he was the class clown, or maybe he was serious, but I think he was joking. I walk out, he says, are you the governor? And I said, no, I'm one of his attorneys. And I chit-chatted with them, asked them what they had seen at the Capitol, uh, you know, where they were, what they were doing next, what they were studying, and I thanked them, and I walked away. And as I walked away, and this just warmed my heart, I hear all of these little kids saying, she's one of his lawyers, she's one of his lawyers, she's one of his lawyers, she's one of his lawyers. And it warmed my heart because all these little black and brown kids have a vision of a lawyer that looks a whole lot like them. That's not something I ever had growing up. I could see people nodding, um, so much so, I've been practicing law for well over 30 years, but so much so that even right now today, if, if we were to play a word association game and you said, picture a lawyer, I wouldn't necessarily picture someone that looks like me, but hopefully these kids will. Um, that's why representation matters. So, you know, at, at heart, they now hopefully have a, there's a little seed, a little spark for them to think that it's possible. Um, and I'll just, I guess we'll harken back to the comments I made a moment ago about how 
diverse perspectives are important because that's the only way that you can incorporate diverse viewpoints and experiences in, into the work. And at the Supreme Court, I have six other colleagues, there are seven of us, we all have very different backgrounds. And I think that our work product is richer because of it, because we all have different perspectives that we bring to the table. Um, it's very interesting, your, your comments about being a working mother and the hope and, and the dreams that we have for young people and the importance of diversity there. I was wondering, we have some law students here, some younger attorneys. Do you have any um, comments that, or any advice regarding work-life balance? I, I, I take it you, you have a, a daughter and you have a family, so if you could talk a little bit about work-life balance, it sounds like there's a lot going on, serving the public, working, raising kids, being an inspiration. Um, so what, what words do you have about work-life balance? Well, I, I'm very fortunate in that I have a very, very supportive partner. Next month will be our 33rd anniversary. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, um, I know not everyone has that, but that's one strategy. <laughs> And we've always been able to lean out and lean in and support one another's you know, careers and passions. So that has been a strategy or uh, something that's made my career uh, more doable or, you know. Uh, I, I think it's important to do something, to do something that, first of all, that you really are interested in, that you really love. Because if you are spending most of your time doing something that you're not happy about, that you're not enthusiastic about, that's going to be the biggest um, drain on your soul and on your heart. Uh, if you're working in an area that you're passionate about, that you're interested in, you are not going to, those long hours are not going to feel as long. With that said, it's, it's important to always keep time for yourself. Always, always make sure that you take moments to step away. Make sure that you have people in your life that are not lawyers. So they're not always talking about law, not always talking about law, and, and, and do things that give you joy. I love to cook, so I cook a lot. I love live music. Um, who, who got to see Beyonce on her tour recently? I mean, no one? You missed out. Um, so I see, a lot, I see a lot of live music. So you know, make sure that you do those things that, that give you joy as well, and those will, will fuel, fuel you in the, in the hard times. And always, I guess the other thing I would say Always go back to your why. Uh, that gives me energy. When I think about why am I doing something, it's, it's a reset for me. And then the other thing that gives me perspective and energy, I keep mentioning my grandmother, um, you know, I think about how hard she worked and I think about my ancestors literally in fields. And I'm in an air-conditioned safe building every day. So it's hard to complain about that, you know? Mm -hmm. So perspective is really important too. That's wonderful. <laughs> All right, so we may have some, um, some aspiring judges here um, uh, in the audience. Um, so wanted to know from you, what inspired you to apply for appointment to the bench and, and how have you enjoyed it? How have you found it? I, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer when I was a little kid and Probably not that long after that, thought I might want to be a judge someday too. Uh, but I'll tell you, tell you a story. A num maybe 15, 12, 15 years ago, a friend of mine who's a federal court judge encouraged me to apply for an open magist magistrate position. And I did, and I made it very far in the process. I was one of two finalists, and I was not selected. 
uh, the person who had been a career prosecutor was selected. Um, and so I thought, you know, maybe, you know, maybe my my credentials are, are are too radioactive or something like that. Maybe I'm seen as too progressive to be a judge. So I sort of put it out in my my head, but just continued to do work that was important to me uh, and excelled at it. And I ended up, you know, meeting the governor and so the, and becoming one of his his top attorneys. Um, and so it, it, it happened, he appointed me to this pure court and then to my, my current position. And I have, I have loved it. It has been so incredibly fun. Sometimes people ask me, well, how has it been transitioning from being an, a lifelong or career-long advocate to this neutral role? And I'm, I'm no longer an advocate for one side or the other, but I get to be an advocate for the Constitution and for the rule of law, and that's very, very rewarding and very powerful. And now in my current role, I get to be one of seven people that gets to shape the direction of the law in California and interpret these incredibly important legal issues that have the ability of impacting the lives of all 40 million Californians. So that's, it's humbling uh, and it's such an incredible privilege. All right. And we have a number of people here tonight, law students who either may be facing some uh, setbacks, maybe some younger lawyers that may be facing some setbacks, and if they're not, the, this life will bring setbacks. Uh, it will bring them to you. They are coming. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about any setbacks that you may have encountered in your career and how you dealt with those. Well, that's why I mentioned the, the the, my unsuccessful attempt at becoming a magistrate, because I think it's important that we share not only our successes, but also our, I'm, I'm putting in quotation marks, failures. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot through that process, and I'm very happy that I did that. But I say that to all of you, to don't be discouraged. If there's something that you want to do, you know, continue to pursue it. When I first applied to be an attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice, one of the things you, you, they do is they conduct a background check. And the FBI conducts those background checks. And they give you a provisional offer of employment. You start working while the background check is being completed. And I tell you this story because it was a potential setback, but I'll, I'll, you'll see how it concluded. I got a call late one night at my house from the FBI agent who was conducting my background check, and it wasn't unusual for him to call me. He'd often call to check an address or confirm a reference, but it was very odd for him to call late at night. And so he called late one night, and he said, uh, Kelly, I need you to meet me tomorrow. And I said, well, what is it? Tell me now. He said, no, I can't talk to you about it over the phone. We have to discuss it in person. I said, no, you, you cannot call me late at night at home and leave me hanging. What is, what is going on? And he says to me, and these were his words, he says, the FBI investigation has revealed that you lead an, these are his words, alternate lifestyle. <laughs> I started laughing. <laughs> and I said, are you referring to the fact that I'm a lesbian? He said, yes. I said, well, first of all, I'm not impressed with your investigation. Uh, it's obvious on the face of my resume. I'm on the board of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. <laughs> and I said, second, this entire line of inquiry violates DOJ's anti-discrimination policies. And third, I need the contact information for your commanding officer. Um, so needless to say, my background investigation completed successfully. <laughs> 
uh, uh, but all, <laughs> so all this is to say what could have been a potential setback was not. And uh, you know, in what you need to do is believe in your heart that you are entitled to be in every single place and space that you want to be, okay? I know that you know, we talk about imposter syndrome. Um, we talk about not thinking that we're enough, but just remember, if you want to be someplace, you're entitled to be there. You're entitled to breathe, to take up space, and to shine. Always do excellent work because you want to, you know, there may be people who will doubt you or who will try to say that you don't belong somewhere, but when you do excellent work, when you excel and you take up that space, you can be unstoppable. So make sure that, that you, you, you do that. And so that would be some advice I'd give to our, to, to everyone, but particularly our folks at the beginning of their career. So there are some people who believe we're in sort of a post-racial society and this sort of thing and that the uh, playing field is level for women, LGBTQ plus people, for minorities. Um, I don't subscribe to that. Um, <laughs> basically, um, in your career, have you experienced any mistreatment that you felt was because you're um, African-American or a woman or a lesbian? And if so, how did you deal with that? And do you have any words of wisdom to give to the people here in this room when they certainly will in, encounter these things? Well, I, you know, I think I would just refer back to the, the little anecdote that I just, just shared with you. Um, if you can, you're not always able to prepare in advance, but if you can do your homework and be prepared, you'll be, you'll be better able to respond. And sometimes these things come up in the moment and, and there's no amount of preparation that you had time for. But with that background check story that I shared with you, I had the suspicion that something like that could come up. So I made sure that I researched all of the anti-discrimination policies mm -hmm. and had them in my pocket. Um, so, Always do your homework. Make sure that if you can, uh, you know, bring the receipts with you. You may not always be able to, but if you experience things, think back to what I said just a moment ago about you know, remembering that you're entitled to be there. Take a breath, and, and, and you, you've got it. You can do it. And you know, it's okay if there are, there are setbacks. When we hear no or a door closes, it's just an opportunity to get to yes, just another opportunity. All right. And there are many people in this room who are looking to follow in your footsteps. Um, so just wanted to hear words of wisdom from you. Um, I think a lot of the time these days when um, young people are applying to college and even to law school, there's an idea of there's one path or you're mm. supposed to know what you want from the beginning. You're supposed to know what kind of law you want to practice from the beginning, this sort of thing. Um, do you have any words of wisdom about your, um, your journey and whether there's like one standard way to become a judge, one standard way to be, and um, just what words of wisdom you would have for folks who want to follow in your footsteps? Well, I think that used to be the conventional wisdom that you had to, you know, you had to ideally, you know, either be at a white shoe law firm and or be a prosecutor, a traditional prosecutor, not the kind that I was, um, in order to be appointed to the bench. 
uh, you know, I'm proof positive that that's not the case anymore, at least not in California. I would say that there is no single pathway to success, no single pathway to career fulfillment. Do what interests you, find people, and in this bar association, it sounds like there are a lot of them. Find people that are doing things that you find interesting, that pique your curiosity, reach out to them. I have never once said no to an attorney who has contacted me and said, hey, can we chat? Not once. And I don't know many attorneys who, who, who do say no. What's the worst thing that can happen? They maybe don't respond to you, or if they do say no, big deal, move on, go to the next person. So um, do what interests you, excel at it, and if something is not working, change it up. You heard, um, you may have thought when you heard a little bit about my bio, well, she really cannot keep a job, you know? Uh, well, I, you know, I am a very curious person that is interested in a lot of things, and so I've I had a career doing a lot of different things, and each one of those things better prepared me for the, for the next. But it's one of the reasons my career has been so rewarding is because I haven't been afraid to change it, change it up. So that's advice I'd give you as well. I sometimes talk with students who are agonizing, saying, well, I don't know if I should go into this or go into that. I say, well, try one and then try the other. You know, we, there's nothing that's handcuffing you to one career path or one, one anything. So stay flexible and stay open, I guess, is something I would say. All right, that's so inspirational. All right, we have lots of good questions. I think some of them you've already answered, and then a few of them I can consolidate. Are you reading, watching, listening to anything inspiring at the moment? Yes, yes. Um, so I recently, I, I'm one of these people that always has three or four or five different books going at a time so that depending on my mood, I can pick the genre. Uh, so I recently finished a book called Invisible Child. Has anyone read it? It won the, the Pulitzer, um, or Pulitzer, however you say it, last year. And it's by um, Andrea Elliott. She is a journalist who spent eight years with a little girl named Dasani Coates in New York and her family, um, chronicling basically how our, it was, it was a New York, it was based in New York, but it could be based in California or any place, chronicling how poorly we treat poor children and poor families and mm -hmm. describing the institutional failures of the, the so-called child welfare system in New York. It's a stunning piece of journalism. I love ethnographies, so, you know, it's one of these six or 800 page books, but it is so good, and it also, one of the things that's so interesting but also heartbreaking about it is it traces Dasani's family back a few generations and talking about kind of where her ancestors came from, and, and um, it's an amazing story about the resilience of this little girl and her family, but just a damning indictment of how we as a society treat poor children and poor families. I highly recommend it. Have you had a mentor that has made a particular impact and how did you uh, navigate that relationship? One of my um, best mentors is Judge Selton Henderson. Does, do people, people are nodding. <laughs> he is a, a lion um, in our profession. He's now a senior status. <laughs> exactly, at um, senior status in the Northern District in California. I had the privilege of being his monitor in a police reform case for several years, so I got to work very, very closely with him. And, you know, he's 
brilliant, he's courageous, he's kind, uh, and just not, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the values that Peter was talking about, he, he showed in his, throughout his career as an attorney and then as a judge as well. If you look at his, the body of work, uh, he was the first um, to issue a, a number of decisions, expanding opportunity, expanding access for various uh, communities and even environmental, so there's even environmental law cases, but he is such a role model to me in terms of personhood and, and being a judge. So he's, um, it was easy to navigate because I, he was my, you know, my boss, I worked for him, um, but I've maintained that relationship with him. What is one thing that you took away from law school that still applies to you to this day? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I would say as uh, newer attorneys, remember that in our profession, it should be in every profession, but I think in our profession, reputation means a lot. You've got your reputation, so make sure that you are doing everything you can to keep it sterling, and to me that means that you treat everyone, and I mean everyone, with um, respect. Um, one of the things, you know, people watch legal dramas or movies and they think that lawyers have to be jerks. I don't subscribe to that. Uh, you know, no matter how opposing counsel, for example, may be acting, comporting themselves, I don't sink to that level. You know, I'm always going to be the adult in the room, the calm person in the room, the role model in the room. Um, and you don't have to do that. And I think as a result, I have, I think I can honestly say that I've never burned a bridge in my life. So there are opposing counsel, judges, former employers, whomever, you know, because of the respect, uh, because of the honest way in which I dealt with them, even though we may fiercely disagree, fiercely disagree, uh, there is an ability to communicate. And so I think if you take that ethos with you in all that you do, it'll get you very, very far. And not, not just your professional relationships, but personal relationships as well. Did you ever experience imposter syndrome? And if so, how did you manage it? You know, it's it's hard not to doubt yourself. I think it's hard. You know, we're we're human beings, and I think that oftentimes, particularly women, particularly people of color, uh, we may doubt ourselves. We may, for example, see a job opening that says, "Well, you need to have these ten qualifications," and we think, "Well, I've only got nine and a half, so I'm not going to apply." Meanwhile, others say, "I've got two. I'm going to apply." Um, when I was when the governor called and said that he wanted me, he wanted to appoint me to the California Supreme Court. I said to my partner, I said, oh, oh my goodness, you know, what, what on earth? And she, she had said, you know, I knew this was going to happen. What are you talking about? You know, you're, <laughs> you know what you're talking about. Uh, I can't think of anyone else who he would be better suited for the job. Um, so, you know, partly coping through the, uh, I don't know if it's rose-colored glasses, but maybe the, um, the support of, again, my partner who, you know, maybe sees weaknesses or sees strengths where I maybe see, see gaps or weaknesses. And then to give, just to give myself some of that, some of the, the, the positive pep talk that I shared with you earlier, um, I, you know, fundamentally, I think I have um, confidence in, in my values. Um, I know that I've seen a whole lot, and I know that I'm going to be a, a, a sort of a good faith 
broker, and I also know that I work really, really hard and do my homework, and that when you bring that combination of things to anything, you can, you can do well. So that's probably some of the ways that I've coped. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please feel free to hit the follow button on wherever you are listening to your podcast.